Good evening. I have been telling my classes that we all have different interests and vocabularies reflecting them. My instances are usually the 37 words in the Patagonian language for varying degrees of hunger and the 17 or 27 or however many words there are in Eskimo for different kinds of snow. Scotch taped to the elevator this morning was a handout advertising the Houseplant Society's show, The Joy of Houseplants. This is taking place next weekend, and I will post this for many of you whom I'm sure, uh, who I'm sure will be interested. At th these uh, meetings, you will have the opportunity to meet with and learn from representatives of the Knickerbocker branch of the American Begonia Society, the Bonsai Society of New York City, the New York Bromeliad Society, the New York Cactus and Succulent Society, the Greater New York Chapter of the American Gloxinia and Gesneriad Society, the Horticultural Society of New York, the Manhattan Orchid Society, and the Metropolitan Chapter of the Indoor Gardening Society of America. So they're all out there. The date is uh, Halloween, Maud. Saturday and Sunday. Our specialist lecture this evening is to be delivered by David Vesey, who last spoke here when he was curator of Western Manuscripts at the Bodleian Library in 1981, as we just discovered. He spoke then on the Department of Western Manuscripts at the Bodleian. He is now Bodley's librarian, and he speaks to us this time on the whole thing, the uh, pleasures and perils of being Bodley's librarian. It's a pleasure to welcome him back to Columbia. Well, thank you. <clears throat> thank you very much. I don't know whether I can, uh, I can rival all those uh, horticultural societies that uh, Terry spoke of. It just goes to show, really, doesn't it, that other people's specialities are always more ridiculous than one's own. <laughs> and they probably feel exactly the same way, I think. Um, I've probably, I think, got no need to explain to, to you, or to some of you, perhaps most of you, um, what the Bodleian Library at Oxford is. Just looking back through um, the list of speakers who have appeared at, in this series over the years since they were started, a fair number of people have come from the Bodleian Library and have doubtless explained uh, to, to you or some of you or your predecessors what, in fact, the library at Oxford is. Um, it, it is one of the great ancient libraries of the world, and its very name means something to many people, not only librarians, uh, who haven't ever seen it or who haven't ever been to it. It, it uh, conveys that the name means something to most people. And what I think it betokens to most people is to start with something architectural, the image of the library's buildings. Um, and after all, part of the library, the, the oldest part, has been in more or less continuous use as a library since 1488. Now, I'm, that, that enables me to go out and say that we're the oldest continuously active public library in England. Um, Cambridge University librarian won't have anything of that uh, because he said they published one and possibly two catalogues uh, before 1488 and therefore their 
uh, were, they've been in existence far longer than we have. Uh, but nevertheless, we are still occupying the same buildings that we were occupying then. And um, that gives us some kind of an image. It's that sort of an image. It's one of the kind of icons of the book world in the library sense, rather like, I mean, Wolfenbüttel is another one, and Cambridge, uh, England, certainly isn't. It's one of the shrines, if you like, of library, of the library uh, world, of, of library history. And it's also those, that shrine, that set of buildings, uh, of which people have an image in their mind, also contains one of the great historical collections of manuscripts and of early printed books. And worldwide, I suppose, its special collections are famous. And it, so those two things give it its own niche, I was going to say, though I suppose niche is actually the wrong word. Eminence, I think, is probably a better word. Its own eminence uh, in the world of books, and rightly so. Now, for 10 years, I ran part of the library, the what I then considered to be the most prestigious part of the library, that's to say the Department of Western Manuscripts, manuscripts in recognizably Western languages. Um, and so I am, um, if you like, imbued, I'm pickled in all that uh, feeling of, of the place as a great historical continuum set in these ancient buildings. And that was, to me, what the Bodleian Library was all about, in the same way that I think it is to many people who've never been there. So I'd spent 10 years running part of it, and that's what it was all about to me. Now I think if we've, uh, I'll begin by looking at some slides which reinforce that image, just to, for those of you who don't know what the place looks like, to show you what, what the popular image of the library is, and also show you some of the things which I then looked after as Keeper of Western Manuscripts, and which give it uh, its tremendous strength in those older things. Now then, how do I, um, how do I start this off? Yes, F-O-R, there we are, right. Now that is, um, a picture of the center of the University of Oxford, if indeed the University of Oxford has a center, um, because the University of Oxford is, as you probably know, a collegiate university. It consists of 40 separate colleges, all doing more or less their own thing, but um, roughly controlled by the sum total of all the teachers in all the colleges, who uh, together make up what is called the university. And I always have to explain this to, to uh, people that a university, of course, um, strictly speaking, is a collection of teachers. It's not a collection of teachers and students. The students are there uh, simply in order to keep the teachers in the manner in which they'd like to become accustomed by, <laughs> by paying fees and uh, being tutored uh, in a way which will lead them too to become teachers. I mean, that is, that is originally what a medieval university was, so that the university was the collection of teachers, and the students were a kind of optional extra. Now, the government of the University of Oxford is still run as if we were in the medieval period. That is to say, uh, we are governed uh, extremely democratically, I might say, by all the teachers. 
everybody gets a vote on everything, which makes it a very difficult university to run, in fact. Um, and when I say everybody, of course, I mean all the teachers. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, to, to the teachers, it's very democratically run. To the, to the student body, it doesn't appear quite so democratically run. <laughs> Uh, but then they haven't got a highly developed uh, historical sense. Uh, but if, so the university then consists of 40 separate colleges, at the heart of which lies the most important building or set of buildings in any university, its library. And I think that's a import, very important po point always to bear in mind. Well, we don't, I suppose those of us who are librarians don't need any reminding of that that it is quite possible to have an extremely good university without a lot of the attachments which universities gather to themselves. Um, Theatres and uh, football teams and um, all that kind of thing. You can have a good university without any of those. You can't have any kind of a university without a library. Um, and the library is actually the, the most important part of it. And right in the centre of Oxford uh, is the, its library, which really is its historic library is this set of buildings here. All, all that is the Bodleian Library. And there's more of it. That is all connected up underground. There are three floors below that ground, and two uh, below that building, and two floors below this building. And they're all connected by a series of underground uh, tunnels going through there. So that is the, the, the center of uh, the university. Now, it started historically with this little building here, that one. Forget the fact that all this now exists, it didn't exist then, and it started with that building there, which was built in the middle of the 15th century for the teaching of the university's principal subject then, which was divinity. And that was the divinity school, um, and it's about the finest example you'll find anywhere, I think, of English perpendicular architecture on a small scale. And it's also a very good example of what we're all very skilled at now, which is advertising. Um, the great and the good who gave money for the erection of this building in the middle of the 15th century got to have their devices carved up here on the tracery alongside religious symbols and so forth. So that as we as I walk into that room most mornings of the week, I look up there and think there is a message from our medieval sponsors. <laughs> now, while that building was being built, the university was given its first, well, to all intents and purposes, its first collection of books. And so they put a second story onto that, and it became a two-story building, and then looked like that, which is the image which now most people have of the Bodleian Library this medieval library with the divinity school below and the library above, an entrance to the library controlled up this spiral staircase. And that whole uh, uh, image, icon, has now become our logo, if you like. Um, you'll, you'll notice that I wear it on my tie because I'm a good company man. Um, uh, and and that, that is now our, our library's image. And inside it looked like that when it was first opened. Uh, it was an uncomfortable life being a scholar in later medieval England. You stood up to read. You weren't trusted with the books, so they chained the books to the desk. Um, and you had to get out when it got dark. Uh, 
So, but that library was opened, as you, as you see, in 1488 um, and didn't, in fact, last very long. And this, in fact, has a message from me nowadays, which I'll come on to later, um, as, as Bodley's librarian. Um, when that opened in 1488, it opened as an unendowed library, and an unendowed library of what, by 1488, had become old technology. It was a manuscript library in an era of printing. Print, printing had come to England not long before that. So from the day that it opened, it was old technology. Um, what printing did, of course, was bring down the price of books. Uh, colleges, which, which then existed, could expand their libraries because books had become cheap and in multiple copies. Um, if colleges could expand their own libraries, they weren't going to give money for a central university facility. So it went into economic decline almost as soon as it was opened as well. And then onto the scene, uh, soon after this, came the Protestant reformers. And this was recognizably not only old technology, but old ideology as well. This was a Roman, this, this was full of Romish books, as it were, in this new era of Protestantism, and so it was destroyed. The building was uh, left, but the books were uh, uh, torn up and thrown away, uh, most of them. Uh, I think we know where uh, 20 now are, or at least parts of 20, uh, scattered all over the world. And what I aim to do next year, because of course next year is 1988, when we can, when we can celebrate half a millennium of book reading in that room, um, I intend to try and get those 20 back into that room for a kind of sentimental uh, exhibition before they wing, wing their way off uh, to where they are now. And I think we will get them all back in, except one, because the Vatican won't lend the one that they've got, uh, so we can't get, it, get that back in. However, that... that fell into disuse. And then onto the scene in the 16th century came this man, um, after whom uh, my title comes, and whose librarian I am. Uh, this is, I am Bodley's librarian, not uh, the Bodleian librarian. I am Sir Thomas Bodley's librarian. I am this man's librarian. And I'm the 22nd person to have held that title since 1602. And it's been a continuous succession. There have only been 22 of us. And Sir Thomas Bodley, who was an Elizabethan diplomat and a scholar, uh, towards the end of his life, having married uh, into a fortune and his wife having died, leaving him with that fortune, uh, decamped back to Oxford and used his fortune to refound uh, the university library, uh, aided by this man, who was his first librarian. I'm the 22nd, this is the first. You may say that he looks more like a librarian than I do. At least, at least he's holding a book, that's always a good sign. <laughs> um, but that's, that's the sort of librarian that Sir Thomas Bodley would have liked. Uh, here's the image of a, of a Protestant librarian uh, holding his book. And together those two men uh, took that rectangular room and made that out of it, which is what the Bodleian Library, uh, the old part, Duke Humphrey's Library, now is. I could, I could deliver a whole lecture just with that slide on the screen because it's, very, it's so interesting in terms of library history. Um, note, for instance, uh, the, the faith that these two people had that true scholarship is only found in a big book. <laughs> They built, they built no shelves to take little books, only folio volumes. Uh, they did, neither did they want books in English either. 
only books in scholarly languages, Latin, Greek, uh, High German, Dutch, um, yes, uh, Hebrew, but not English. They didn't like books in English, which is very sad when you think that they were building a library while Shakespeare was actually writing. And there they were standing saying, we don't want that rubbish in this library, thank you very much. We want good scholarly material in big books. And so they provided the shelves for it, and on the ceiling they they decorated this ceiling beautifully. Um, Here's a a shot of the ceiling. And on each of these uh, uh, panels here are the university's coat of arms with the university's motto, which says, Dominus Illuminatio Mea, God is my light. No other artificial light was allowed in that reading room until the 1930s. You, you look up at that. You look up at that ceiling as you as you pause from reading your manuscripts and rare books in Duke Humphrey, and you look. See, this is the university's coat of arms, uh, with its reference to God is my light, and here is uh, Sir Thomas Bodley's coat of arms on the cross beams. So it's quite clear that that room is built for the greater glory of God, the greater glory of the university, and the greater glory of Sir Thomas Bodley, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> Well, almost immediately that they built that that building, um, Sir Thomas Bodley pulled off a masterstroke in that he made an arrangement with the stationer's company that they would send to this new library. And we must remember that what these two men had had done was actually found what was the first national library. It was a library not just simply for the University of Oxford, and it still isn't. It's for the University of Oxford and, as they said, for the Republic of the Learned, for all comers. And so they, they, this is the first national library. And he, Sir Thomas Bodley, then convinced the stationers' company that they should send to his library a copy of every book then licensed to be published. So into the library from 1610 onwards began to come all bo- a lot of books in English and a lot of books in small format crisis, what were they going to do with them? They hadn't got any shelves, and so they, uh, they did what uh, we've been doing ever since, really, was build a new building. And the whole history of the library from that moment onward can be summed up, I think, in the phrase, we continuously run out of space. Um, I think when they first set up the library, and this, sorry, this is again a a diversion from what I really want to say, but when they first set up the library, they, I think, had no conception at all that the library would just continuously expand. They looked backwards on the whole. They looked back to precedent. They garnered into that room all the best precedent and put it in that room and said to the university, there you are, there is knowledge, get on and use it. I don't think they thought of knowledge being added to. They didn't think of experimentation. They didn't think of the ringing grooves of change and all those things that we now think of, of knowledge marching forward in an ever-expanding series of books. They didn't think in that way. But nevertheless, they opened the floodgates as soon as they made this arrangement with the stationers' company. And the, so then they had to build this addition to the end of the library, which the library runs that way, and this addition is a kind of the top of the T on the end of the library. And this is a terribly interesting piece of library archaeology as well. Because you see, with all these little books, he was faced with the problem of whether he could, he could chain them to the shelves and therefore allow the readers to go near them. But he decided that he couldn't. 
if he wasn't going to chain the books, he couldn't allow the readers near them, otherwise the readers would put them in their pockets and run off with them. Uh, so in that case, he decided to make them safe and put them as high up in the air as he could get them and put a, a walkway around here, halfway up the wall, and a staircase going up to the walkway, a door on the bottom of the staircase, a lock on the door, and the librarian had the key. So what he'd done was invent what librarians would now recognize as a closed access stack. It's the first closed access stack in a, in a public library. Uh, and you see up there are the, the little books. Uh, and they still are, and many of those books on that, those shelves are the ones which were put on those shelves when the library was first opened. So this is not only then um, a shrine, it's a bit of library archaeology, and it's a bit of, it's, it's kind of very emotive, just to give you one example uh, out, of, out of many that I could give. Um, soon, last year, uh, soon after I became librarian, we had a visit from the King and Queen of Spain, and we put on a little exhibition called Spain in the Bodleian, Interesting Spanish Things. And one of the things that we were able to put out in that exhibition was a copy of the first edition of the first part of Don Quixote, which had been bought as a new book uh, for the Bodleian Library when it was first published, had been brought in and put on a shelf up here, and was still there. It had never changed its shelf mark it had never moved from that spot. Well, it had moved. Clearly, it had been read. But it had never been taken away from there and put in um, air-conditioned, uh, temperature and humidity-controlled, closed-access stack. That's where it was. It had become kind of embedded as part of the furniture and part of the icon and part of the archaeology, if you like, of that room. So that's another of the, of the things which we have to try and preserve in, of course, a completely different era. It is actually, it would be wrong to take the things off those shelves and put them away uh, in our air-conditioned stacks and, and, and fill those with something else. Um, we have a kind of duty to keep these books in that area. And that's another um, problem which I'll come on to later. Well, then I'll just quickly romp through the rest of the history of the library. Um, the, the library, the Divinity School is, there, is through there. The first library runs backwards through there. This was the first edition where we've just seen the small books. So it was in a T-shaped building. And then in the, 16, uh, the, the first quarter of the 17th century, this bit was added as a quadrangle, uh, butting up to the new library, with two floors here for university professors, and one floor above it, again financed by Sir Thomas Bodley, for an ext another extension to his library. So you had a neat academic... Um, model, if you like, of two floors of teachers and one floor of teaching aids, the books. What, of course, happens over the years, what always tends to happen, is that the teaching aids completely overwhelm the teachers. And so slowly, because of the way that printing presses operate, uh, gradually there became too many books to be held upstairs, and they begin to move downwards. So that by the 18th century, the teachers have been pushed out of this floor, and by the 19th century, they're squirted out of these doors here uh, by the pressure of the books coming from downstairs and have to get off to some other part of, of town uh, where, where a great Victorian mansion was built uh, called the Examination Schools, um, where, the, where the teachers went to, leaving all this uh, full of library books. 
This is the other side. We we're standing now with our backs to that building, which we've just looked at, looking across the quadrangle. This was the floor originally intended for books. These two were where the teachers were. They were pushed out. And then over the main gate was this um, huge tower, which was built to house uh, another part of uh, the university's collections. And that's to say it's archives. Towers, generally speaking, this kind of tower in Oxford, and Oxford has many towers like this, um, all the colleges have them, for instance, and what they are, actually, are safes, or were. Um, in early modern times, if you had valuable objects, they, you, didn't, you couldn't put them in the bank, there weren't any banks. Um, you could either bury them in the ground, or better still, put them way up in the air, uh, up a tower, the top of a tower. And, and as I say, have a, have a spiral staircase which runs all the way up here, controlling access to these towers. And uh, this was the university's safe place to put its valuables. Now, the university, on the whole, has never had any valuables. Um, colleges have valuables. The university just has, uh, well, it has assets, like a library. Um, and it has expenses, like librarian salaries. Uh, but it doesn't really have very many valuables itself. Uh, what it does have, of course, are rights and privileges, which are enshrined in its charters. So what its valuable things that it put up here uh, were its archives, and it was its archive tower. Um, and the, the room, actually, this is two rooms, one here and one here, and, and the one in here is still fitted with its original 17th century archive furniture, which itself is interesting. I ought, just before I pass on very rapidly to explain this group of statuary here, Sir Thomas Bodley and his first librarian were extremely good at what we would now call fundraising. What they called, in their phrase, stirring up other men's benevolence. <laughs> they were jolly good at that. And they, all the great and the good vied with one another uh, either to, to give books to this new foundation. At least that's the story that Sir Thomas Bodley put about. I suspect he was such a bore about books that people would give him books to get him to go away. Um, I, I, I think he was, you know, and fundraising is a bit like that anyway. Um, but, but he was very good at it, but both of them were. But the one person they were unsuccessful with was this man, uh, James I. Uh, King of England and Scotland, who had a very, was a considerable scholar himself and had a very good library. And Bodley wanted that to come to his new library, and then it would really have been the National Library. But James I, being a very good Scotsman, um, wouldn't give anything away, um, and nor would, his, nor would his librarian, who was also Scottish. And they hung on to what they had, quite rightly, and all the blandishments of, of Sir Thomas Bodley got absolutely nowhere. Uh, except towards the end of his life, James I did give us a benefaction. He gave us one book, which he gave us twice. Um, so, uh, and you can guess what the book is. It's the complete works of James I. Uh, and there he is, sitting here on his throne with his two books, handing them out to allegorical figures representing uh, fame and knowledge. So it's a monument to failure, really, that, that is there. Uh, sorry, I must, I must uh, romp on. Um, this is the 18th century addition to the Bodleian Library, but built as a completely separate library to start with. Nothing to do with the Bodleian Library, but about 25 yards away from its front door. 
and a huge building it is, just one single room from there to here. A gigantic room built to typify what was happening in Oxford University in the 18th century. And what was happening was that the university had been converted from being a place where scholars came to be made better scholars, it had become a place where gentlemen came to be made better gentlemen. And gentlemen didn't like living in and working in Elizabethan slums. Uh, they wanted to live and work in much grander places. And this is a very grand place indeed. This is the 18th century image of the library, contrasting with the later Elizabethan one uh, of Sir Thomas Bob. But completely separate um, and next door and a great source of envy to those people who worked in the Bodleian Library. So from the moment that opened in 1749, the librarians over the road in the Bodleian Library cast their eyes on this and tried to capture it. Um, and it took them 120 years, but in the end they did it. By the 1860s, that had become part of the Bodleian Library. And almost immediately, uh, the, un the um, undercroft underneath this big room Originally, you could have walked in through any of these archways. Those, those steps shouldn't be there. You could have walked in here and then gone up to the reading room uh, to do your reading. Uh, almost immediately, when the Bodleian took it over, they, they filled in these archways. They put glass and, and grills in and made it into two rooms. So it's a two-roomed um, building. And that, but that didn't do much for the space problem. And so by the beginning of this century, they dug an enormous hole under the ground here and put two floors of books under uh, that building, the Radcliffe camera as well. That didn't solve the problems, and so in the 1930s, the final solution was come to, which was to build this building. Arguably the most hideous building in Oxford. <laughs> um, it really is awful, both inside and out, uh, but it has one great advantage, and that is that it is very big. It is huge, in fact. Um, there are 11 floors. On the outside, there are only three floors, as you can see. But down the middle, there are 11 floors, from three floors below ground uh, to right at the top here. And the below ground floors contain something like 30 miles of books. So it's a very, very big area below the ground here. Um, now, that was opened in 1946 and was designed to solve all our space problems until the year 2000. Well, it didn't. By the, by, by the 1960s, we'd uh, run out of space, or all the space was earmarked. And at that stage, bits of the library were uh, put elsewhere. Um, well, no, that, this is another 18th century building, or, originally built to house the university's printing presses, uh, which the library took over um, in the 1960s. And, and so that's the now part of the library. But then working bits of the library were then put elsewhere. So that, for instance, this is Rhodes House Library here. Part of, this is the house that is the headquarters of the Rhodes Foundation. And this is the Bodleian Library's um, section on colonial commonwealth, and I'm sorry to say American history. Uh, it goes in there. Uh, this is the Science Library, uh, which again has a huge underground extension under the, under the ground here, and is itself um, the, the largest non-governmental library of science and technology in Europe, which is worth remembering, and it's part of the Bodleian. And this is the latest of the buildings which we've built fairly near the central site. This is the law library, 
which is an enormous contrast with the 14th century English perpendicular that we started with. That's 19, uh, late 1960s, early 1970s, Beatles architecture, <laughs> all stripped pine and whitewash uh, inside, um, but really quite a light and airy open access law library. Uh, and now we, we've done what most major libraries do, and that's we've gone out into the country. So that out, eight miles out into the, into the countryside of Oxfordshire, we have a remote store, um, a repository, an infinitely expandable single-story modular building. Um, and the technique there is just to build an air-conditioned module, um, fill it full of little-used little used books, um, raise some money, add another module, fill that full of books, raise some money, add another module, fill that full of books for the rest of time. <laughs> so I said, I, I have this fantasy that if we all come back in 350 years' time, the whole of Oxfordshire will be one floor deep in the books of the Bodleian Library. <laughs> we, should be, we shall all be able to, to, well, for those of you who know the geography of the area, we shall all be able to walk about from... from Oxford about halfway to London on the roof of the Bodleian Library. <laughs> we, shan't, we shan't be able to walk all the way to London because at about Henley-on-Thames we shall meet the British Library coming in the other direction. <laughs> it's a terrible thing. Um, and, and that is, I mean, that's, you know, I make, I make light of it and, and joke about it, but it's one, of the, it's one of the things which I want to make a little, um, well, make, make one or two comments about later on. What I think I'll do now is um, stop the, uh, the slides, do a bit of talking, and then if we've got time at the end, we'll uh, come back to some more slides. I press the two center buttons at the same time. Oh, isn't that clever? Well, now, that's shown you the, the growth of the buildings. We haven't looked at any of the contents. There's a lot of slides in the machine which um, are about the contents, which I'll talk about a little bit at the end if I have time. But since the, the, the title of the talk was that the, the, the pleasures and perils of being Bodley's librarian. Um, perhaps I ought to uh, develop that theme a bit. It's to start with, clearly, I mean, you can just see from that, from that series of slides, there are immense pleasures just from being part of an institution like that with such marvelous collections, which have grown and been collected, if you like, um, well, in two ways. It's a collection of collections. It's a collection of things which other people have collected and then have come to rest in the Bodleian Library. But it's also, it's, it's a slow growth over time of new books which have become old. It's a huge collection of old new books, if you like. I mean, books which were bought as new books in the early 17th century are now recognizably rare, though were bought not as rare books, but as new books. So it's, it's it's a tremendous pleasure to be part of an institution with collections like that in such a beautiful place with such a very long history and with such very well-founded traditions. And above all, it's a great pleasure to be part of a library which has all those things and yet believes very strongly in use. Uh, I think the Bodleian Library always has believed that in all its aspects and particularly in its rare book aspect, in the end, what the library is about is readers. It's not about rare book librarians, um, whatever we might think. 
that really it's about readers, and that's, that's always, it seems to me, been its strength. Well, that's a great pleasure, and always had been a pleasure for me when I ran the Department of Western Manuscripts in that library. And then on April Fool's Day, 1986, I suddenly found myself, unexpectedly, in a position which I hadn't sought, uh, being that of Bodley's librarian. For the first time in my life, I had a title um, which incorporated the word librarian. I'd not been a librarian up till then. And as I said, I, I became the 22nd person to hold that title of Sir Thomas Bodley's librarian. And to put it mildly, the viewpoint suddenly changed on April Fool's Day, uh, 1986. I'd always been aware, of course, that there, there was much more to the Bodleian Library than that role which I've just expanded to. I'd, after all, for 10 years, been part of the management team, and I knew what the other parts of the library were, at least I thought I did. But as I went round the library, familiarizing myself with the other departments and meeting some of the 370 members of staff whom I hadn't met before, only then, I think, did I realize what it was that I was now heading up. Firstly, there was the whole business of being a national library of legal deposit, a copyright library. Five million printed books and growing at the rate of 1.4 miles a year. And having been a copyright library since 1610. Uh, not only that, which was quite a responsibility to assume, not having had it before, but the library was also reckoning to be, and still reckons to be, a library of 100% retention. Now there are an awful lot of implications in that that I hadn't altogether realized before. We don't regard ourselves at the moment as being in the recycling business. Once a book comes into the Bodleian Library, there it stays. Not since the 17th century when, as you doubtless know, we are the library which deaccessioned the first folio of Shakespeare as an out-of-date edition of a contemporary author. Um, once, you've, once you've done that, you, you live with the, uh, the fact that you <laughs> made a bad mistake um, and you, you don't feel quite so cavalier about deaccessioning. And the result is that now we reckon we don't deaccession anything. We're a library of 100% retention. Uh, we're a great science library. I hadn't realized, really, I think, before I took on that we are the, li the largest non-governmental science and technology library in Europe. But we are. We're a great law library. It's the, it's the largest, um, that law library that I showed you is the largest uh, legal uh, open access library anywhere outside North America, which I hadn't realized. And of course, I, I knew about the enormous, the enormous special collections, apart from those which I'd been used to in, in the rare books and manuscripts front, but I don't think I'd altogether realized the sheer size of the operation which we were running with regard to things like maps. Uh, being a copyright library in maps as well as everything else is a very major responsibility to have. Uh, in music, in ephemera, uh, in, in things like Hebrew, um, the greatest collection of Hebrew manuscripts anywhere, 
and in Sanskrit. I had no idea that the Bodleian Library was the greatest collection of Sanskrit materials outside India, but it is. Um, things like that suddenly dawned on me of the, what, what sort of operation it was that Bodley's librarian headed up. Um, secondly, the, the buildings for which I was now, I found myself responsible. On many sites, as I've shown you there, and some of them uh, we've been occupying since 1488. And I, doing a bit of research on all this, um, I quickly realized that there is no library building for the university uh, in Oxford, apart from temporary stores, which the library had once occupied and which it had ever given up. Once the library occupies a building, it has never given it up uh, in favor of something else. It's just added to it. So that we've got, as you've seen from those pictures, we're occupying buildings running from the time of Henry V right through to the Beatles. That sort of time span. Now that is very different from most libraries who, which have been operating over that long uh, period. Um, I don't know whether any of you have dipped into what's a marvelous two-volume um, edition, two-volume history of uh, Cambridge University Library, which has just been published or was published last year. Um, but they made an entire, they took an entirely different uh, decision uh, to, to abandon all their old buildings and build in, in the 1920s and 1930s on what we would now call a greenfield site uh, in Cambridge. Um, it's, it's you know, not a, not a pretty library to go and visit, but it's much more efficient in that uh, it doesn't occupy these, uh, this tremendous range of buildings, which were absolutely ideal in 1488, but leave something to be desired now. Uh, so that was another thing that I hadn't realized. Uh, I hadn't altogether realized, I think, that absolutely every one of the Bodleian Library's cataloging processes in all its departments were manual ones. Every, every one was a manual operation, and that all our cataloging rules were unique and idiosyncratic. I think I knew that, but I hadn't realized the, the extent of it in, in 1986. I hadn't altogether realized, I think, that most of the departments took great pride in the fact that the Bodleian Library was a standalone library. It was in no consortium, except one very new one, a consortium called CURL, the Consortium of University and Research Libraries, which is a bit like AR, the Research, Library, Research Libraries group here, um, consists of the seven biggest university libraries in Great Britain. That's Oxford, Cambridge, London, Manchester, uh, Leeds, Edinburgh, and Glasgow. Uh, well, we were a member of that, uh, but we were in no other uh, consortium, and we reckoned to do everything uh, by ourselves, and we prided ourselves uh, in that. We weren't even in a consortium with other libraries within the university, and there are something like 60 libraries in Oxford University funded by the central university body. There are about 100 altogether, but the others are funded by the colleges. But even with those 60 libraries funded by the university, central university, the Bodleian Library stood apart and was not even in a consortium with, with them. So that was another 
thing that I hadn't altogether realized, except, you know, perhaps I knew it in the back of my mind, but I'd never had really to concentrate on it before. Um, having taken over the library, uh, the Central University Funding Authority in Great Britain, which is called the University Grants Committee. Um, now, the University Grants Committee is, is a body which really dishes out money from central government coffers and distributes it round university, uh, universities to fund them. Now, successive governments in Great Britain had really since 1945 encouraged uh, universities to rely for their funding on the University Grants Commission. And suddenly, just before I took over the Bodleian Library, the government changed its policy. And under the influence of the government which we now have in Great Britain, which um, is a right-wing government, as you probably know, run by a, a very determined and very strong-minded lady, um, the, the policy has been changed. And we have all been told in, in Oxford that all our budgets have to be retrenched by between 11 and 15% by 1991. Now, you know, a great squeal uh, went up, mainly from me, when, when I discovered what, what, what was happening. And whether this is a right or wrong decision politically uh, depends on where one stands politically. But whether it was right or wrong, it present, presented us as a library with a dilemma, I think, which we'd not, certainly not faced since the 1930s. And in a way, I suppose, it was exactly the same kind of dilemma that was faced by New York Public Library some years ago. Um, the sudden realization that the, the public purse is simply not going to provide uh, in the way that it has provided before. And once you, once you, you suddenly realize this, then you know, you have to do the other thing, whatever that is. You have to decide what it is you're going to do and do it. So all those things coming together presented uh, me on April Fool's Day last year with a very interesting and challenging situation. And you can see what, what well, as I said, and that itself was, was interesting. And when many of the greatest pleasures that one had always taken in the Bodleian Library were soon, suddenly turning into perils or pitfalls of one sort or another. Let's just take, for example, something which I'm sure you won't want me to labor, um, our catalog of printed books in the library. Now, whatever we may say as, as librarians, uh, readers on the whole, users of libraries, the patrons, couldn't care less about how a book is catalogued just so long as they can find it, whatever we may say. It's on the whole librarians who worry about catalogues and cataloging style and cataloging rules. And Bodley's idiosyncrasies in its rules were therefore really in the past not something which we felt a need to worry about, just as so long as the readers were happy, as long as the readers could find what they want, um, perhaps the fact that we catalogued our books in an entirely different way from everybody else was something to be uh, proud of. I mean, we'd been doing it for very much longer than most other people, and oughtn't we to be proud of this way that we'd done it? It seemed to be efficient. It seemed to satisfy the readers. And it was slightly endearing to me to have slightly you know, quainter ways of doing things than, than other people. But then, of course, when mechanization comes in, 
and machines provide one, the computer provides one with opportunities which simply were not available before, and give you the opportunity to transmit your catalogue outside the walls of your library in media other than print, when that suddenly becomes possible, as it had never been possible before. And the, the, once you see that that's possible, then of course you see what enormous advantages are to be acqui acquired and, acc and accrue from being able to merge what you do with what others do and take advantage of the work that others do in your institution. Then, the pleasure of being the standalone um, person with very ancient and very hallowed rules um, that are different from everybody else suddenly becomes a pain. And this pain becomes very much worse, like many other pains, when it uh, happens, um, when, it, when it coincides with age. Uh, pains always become uh, worse with age. Age has uh, enormous advantages and it has many disadvantages. Um, age, if, if one's uh, lucky, brings a great deal of knowledge. Um, it brings, with any luck, respect. Uh, it brings honor. And with any luck, it brings wisdom. It brings what, what they used to call gravitas, weight. People look up to you. They listen to what you have to say and so forth. But it also brings other things. It brings infirmity. It brings ailments, uh, many of which you know, are too embarrassing to talk about in polite company. Um, it brings an inability to adapt quickly to change. That's one of the things that, it's, that is the nature of the aging process. And this is nowhere better seen, I think, than in Bodley's catalogue of uh, printed books. You probably know, those of you who've been to Bodley will know, and even those of you who haven't been there will know that uh, the Bodleian Library provides probably the last example in existence of the movable slip catalogue, um, which I, th and I think there's general agreement amongst uh, librarians, whatever part of the business we're in now, that the movable slip catalogue is the most user-friendly of all cataloguing methods. Um, so that's what we used, and at the moment we still use it. Now, it's a very, very user-friendly way to catalogue, and it's fine just so long as the output of the printing presses is not rising, and just so long as the cost of human labour is not high. Well, of course, neither of those things now apply. More and more stuff is being printed, the cost of labour is, is rising uh, fantastically, and simply you, uh, movable slip catalogues have priced themselves out of existence. And the facts that faced me were that we could no longer uh, keep abreast of the processing of all the printed material that was coming into the library. And even if we could, uh, even if we did, and we were perhaps gaining on the processing, uh, we could no longer keep abreast of the process of getting the proce processed entries into the public access catalogue the business of moving the slips and getting the slips into the catalogue had got to be impossible. That was one thing. Now, in the 1960s, the early 1960s, my predecessors had plunged with great enthusiasm into automation. 
and they had decided to concentrate on our catalogue of pre-1920 imprints, which of course is enormous. Now by the time that I took over, the conversion of that pre-1920 catalogue uh, into a machine-readable form was virtually complete. So that was a good thing. But it was according to the Bodleian's rules, and it was not in marked format. So it was not an unalloyed pleasure that that was uh, reaching its, its final form. Now, it was clear that we had to start again. We had to stop and rethink what it was that we, we were doing uh, with what we were doing uh, with automation. And it was clear that we had to stop, stop and start again at the other end of the things uh, with an online public access catalogue of current materials in AACR2 and marked format. And also, we had to make rapidly available, ahead of that, this great backlog of material that was catalogued, but unavailable in the movable slip catalog. Now, the only way to make that quickly available was to put it on cards, and just put that as an additional alphabetical sequence uh, on cards, quickly. So that my first acts, uh, with regard to our catalog of printed books, and as far as the public access to the catalogue was concerned, was in fact to make it more difficult for the reader, um, but much more comprehensive. So that instead of our old catalogue, which was a movable slip catalogue divided into two, pre-1920 and post-1920, lovely simple system. Um, now, or at least next year, the reader coming to the Bodleian Library will have to consult four catalogues. Pre-1920, which will be machine-readable, but probably not available online. And that's clearly, it seems to me, a candidate for a CD-ROM publication as soon as we can uh, get it up and, and do it. So pre-1920 catalogue, machine-readable, but probably not available online. Secondly, 1920 to 1985, which will be the old movable slip catalogue. 1985 to 1988, which will be on cards and then 1988 onwards, which will be an OPAC machine-readable uh, public access catalogue. And then we shall look to retro-conversion in the order 1985 to 88, just to get rid of those cards that we've just created. Then uh, the pre-1920 catalogue, using software to um, you know, kid, kid the machine that we're, um, to massage it, if you like, into a marked format and then 1920 to 1985. And the whole thing is, as I say, bedeviled by the sheer size of the place and the age of the place. It, it really is like, it's so much easy, easier to, to transplant a seedling than it is to pull up a huge tree and, and, and replant that. But that's what we've got to do. We're in the, in the tree planting business. And it's also, of course, we're bedeviled, at least I am, always in the back of my mind, is the thought of what happened to that library in 1488, which was put out of business by the new technology and by the new ideology. Now we're in exactly that same situation again. The technology has changed and the ideology has changed, in our country anyway. Um, our present government's ideology is entirely different from the ideology which has been running libraries uh, for some time. And there's this, there's this slight unease uh, I mean, I know what happened in 1488, and I don't want that to happen again. Um, let, let me just uh, go on a little bit to just talk about one or two um, 
other examples of how these, these pleasures can so easily be converted uh, into uh, perils or pains. Take Bodley's position, the Bodleian Library's position as a shrine. Um, and it's spread into uh, those historic buildings, that series of historic buildings I was talking about, which are one of the great glories of the place, and one couldn't possibly imagine um, the Bodleian Library not operating uh, in those old buildings. But they lead to, I mean, that's a wonderful thing to have. Of course it is. Um, and one tells oneself that every day as one goes in. Don't feel blasé about this. This is a splendid thing to be, to be operating here. But it does lead to, for instance, in, in what we're all thinking about in these days of retrenchment, it does need, lead to the need for more staff than other libraries need. I mean, your normal library has one front door. Goodness knows how many front doors we've got in our buildings, and each of them have to be manned, um, and, and so on. People inspecting readers' tickets and checking bags in and out and all that on all of the doors of all the libraries that we run. Um, and particularly when some of those libraries are magnets for tourists, not just for readers. <coughs> I've forgotten what the figure is for the number of tourists that go into the Divinity School every year, but it's something like a quarter of a million. Uh, people just go in to see the Divinity School and out again. They all have to be uh, looked at and made sure they're not running away with the goods. Um, so in a, in a time when funding on the whole is done by a kind of formula, um, and you look at the size of a library and you look at what it's doing and you know, how many books it's cataloging and all that, and, you, and that's how you work out its funding, um, the fact that the operation that we conduct needs more staff than perhaps a library which somebody else conducts, um, and yet we're funded on the same, by, by, according to the same formula, means that we're gradually getting less and less money to spend actually on acquisitions. Like a smaller proportion um, is able to be spent on acquisitions simply because of the nature of the container in which the, the acquisitions are being put. Now that's an interesting thing. And secondly, of course, there are uh, enormous conservation challenges. Um, we're custodians not only of all those books, but of the setting. And the, the story of the Don Quixote that I mentioned is an example of, of one. Now, if you keep the first edition of the first part of Don Quixote in that room, with tourists coming in and out, with good wood and limestone, opening and shutting windows, people coming in in wet Macintoshes, no air conditioning, no, no uh, humidity control. Clearly, this is going to lead to conservation problems. So you, we just have to take that on board as one of the crosses uh, that we have to bear, particularly if the library is one like ours, which believes in use. Thirdly, there's the, there's the question of being a library of 100% retention uh, in the uh, electronic age. Now, this is another... Um, situation which is in which we're actually being forced again to look at fundamental facts. Um, I think the Bodleian Library has been built up in the unshakable belief that, as I said at the beginning, you cannot have a good university unless you have a good library. And one way of measuring a university's powers and its ability to attract scholars from all over the world has traditionally been the size and the power of its library but at the size of its library principally. Arguments happen between universities on library size. Um, 
But is this necessarily the way that we should be doing it now? Isn't it, is, perhaps isn't the best library the one that has the ability to access collections held by others? Um, especially in these days when we have to look much more to uh, you know, what the managers call efficiency and cost effectiveness. And now that information, and indeed text, is so easily and rapidly transferable, um, is there a need we are now being asked? I'm not asking these questions, other people are asking them. Is there a need in Great Britain for there to be six libraries of legal deposit? Um, what is the case, people are saying, uh, for the universities of Oxford and Cambridge to be saddled with this huge and expensive conservation and building burden which the possession of the copyright privilege brings with it. Now, I know what the case is. I, I know that the copyright privilege is one of the greatest endowments which the University of Oxford has. It doesn't come without cost, but I'm absolutely positive that the, the copyright uh, privilege has done more for Oxford University than virtually anything else uh, in bringing people to it over 300 years. But here, and here we're, um, the sheer expense of the new British Library that is being built in London, and you, you will all know about that, is having a deleterious effect on the rest of us. Um, it is very easy now for government to say, for, for well, let, let us say I'm the librarian of the National Library of Wales, and I go to my, and I run out of space, and I go to the Welsh office, and I say, I need a new building, because the National Library of Wales is running out of space. And they say, oh yes, very good. Why is that then? And you say, well, you know, there's all these books coming in under the copyright privilege, and we need to, we need to store them, and you know, this is a great resource. And you convince them that you're right. And so the Welsh office, the Minister for, for, for Wales, goes off to the Treasury and says, please give me some money to build this new building in, way out in Wales to house these books. And the Treasury will say, now wait a minute, what's this? We've just dug the biggest hole anybody's ever dug in London at colossal expense. And weren't we told that that was to house the copyright, uh, copyright books? What's this about building, digging another hole in Wales to hold the copyright books? And what about Scotland? Why are they asking for a, for a building? And then there's these universities of Oxford and Cambridge. What are they bleating about, about the copyright privilege? Surely we can solve it all with billions and billions of pounds which are going into the British Library. That's enough. We don't want to hear any more about libraries. That's enough of that. We've done that. That's the, that's the, I would say, you might say, the Philistine attitude of, of the Treasury. No. But, you know, it's the monetarist uh, line in these things, and we have to be able to counter it. Um, but it is one of the... Uh, this enormous building that's happening in London for the British Library is having a very bad effect on the rest of us as we try and um, protect our small corner. And I'm convinced that we should fight very much to go on having six copyright libraries. But whether we ought actually to fight for all of us to be libraries of 100% retention, I don't know. Perhaps there is room for manoeuvre uh, there. Um, so, and then, then there's the business, just to go on a bit, that, that size makes change difficult and history makes change difficult. And 
the many roles which the Bodleian Library performs also creates tension. We are basically a university library with a main reference library for a collegiate university with some 100 libraries in it. But we're also a national and international uh, resource center used by the, the world of learning. We admit 10,000 new readers uh, to readership privileges every year. There are only 3,000 new members of the university every year. Most of our readership, in fact, has nothing to do uh, with the university. On the one hand, as a university library, we're seen by our masters to be far too expensive. On the other hand, as a national and international library, we're seen by our friends and by our clientele and by our colleagues to be hopelessly under-resourced. Under I mean, you would, you would fall about laughing if I told you what my salary was, for instance. I'm not going to. Um, but you would consider it to be ludicrous, um, and you'd be right. Um, <laughs> you, you would also fall about laughing if I told you what very small purchasing money we have. We still make very, very significant acquisitions on a tiny budget compared with what other people have. We're ludicrously under-resourced on our national and international scale, but seem to be hopelessly expensive by the university. It's, as I say, it's a very interesting and a very challenging uh, time to be taken over. What then, just to end with, I'll, I'll forget the rest of the slides, but we'll just, I'll just end by saying what then is my role, having taken on uh, the job of being Bodless Librarian, uh, what do I see, how do I see my role in it all? Well, I think, firstly, what I've got to do is to preserve the, the reputation for greatness. I've got to preserve the collections, I've got to develop them, I've got to preserve this, this very good attitude that the library has of being a library for use and not somehow a library for prestige or any of the other things which some libraries are for. And to preserve it as preserve the um, attitude of friendliness uh, which the library has built up over 380 years. I've got to make it less forbidding, if you like, and much easier of access, and I'm sure that means automation. One's got to be able to, one's got to, be able to access the contents of the Bodleian Library from here, from anywhere. Um, it's, it's really is senseless in this day and age that in order to find out what is in the Bodleian Library, you have to actually come to Oxford and, and go to the first floor of a 17th century building. So I've got to make it more mechanized and lastly, of course, I've got to make it wealthier um, so that uh, we can go on developing. And as part of that, I've got to uh, develop that part of our finances which do not come from the public purse. Now, clearly, all those things that I've seen, all those parts of what I consider to be my role, lead in one direction. Quite clearly, it leads to fundraising. Now, whether you know, the, the, the head of a major library like this should be, uh, a large part of his time should be spent fundraising. Some might regard that as a pleasure and some might regard it as a peril. I don't know. But I'm, I'm absolutely convinced of one thing, and that's that, and, and this is a pleasure, uh, is that it's, a, it's such a good cause. Um, whether I'm successful in raising money or not, the cause is good. It's such an extremely good project uh, and such an extremely good product that it is a tremendous challenge um, to be taken on. And that's, um, 
why, I think, on April Fool's Day in 1986, I decided to accept when suddenly out of the blue um, I was offered the job and the very prestigious title of being Bodler's Librarian. Thank you very much.